Last week, we talked about rivers of living water. Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And out of him, whoever believes in me, out of him will flow these living waters. And then the little footnote, not kind of a footnote kind of thing is uh, in the text that John puts in there. It says that he was saying this about the Holy Spirit that was to come. And so we looked at that last week, and coming out of that, that's, that's kind of where I talked about fanning the flame of the Holy Spirit and engaging in Him and, and not quenching the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. But, but I want to see the living waters flowing through our church. Not just good religious activity, but the power of the Holy Spirit breaking down uh, the bonds of sin, causing us to live in beautiful fellowship to the glory of Christ, using those beautiful gifts that he's given us. Like, I don't want just religious activity, but I want the rivers of living water to flow out of my life, to flow out of your life, so that we can truly be his church to the glory of his name. You go on in our text, and we're going to kind of jump ahead here a little bit, but when you go on through the text in John chapter 7, after he cries out, and says those words, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me, and out of him will flow livers, rivers, excuse me, livers, rivers of living water. Slow down. After this, there was some muttering in the crowd. There were some divisions that were rising up. The, tree, the, the chief priests and the rulers of the law, they were starting to ask uh, these officers that were standing by, like, why didn't you apprehend him? Like, he was right there saying these things. Why didn't you grab him? And the officers look at the chief priests and says, no one has ever spoke like this before. No one's ever talked like this before. And the chief priest said, are you guys deceived too? John chapter 7, verse 50. Nicodemus, you might remember him from a few chapters earlier. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And so then they all from there go to their homes. And so that's where we kind of leave off in John chapter 7. And so today we're going to read John chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 1. We're going to read on through uh, to verse 11. And so let's read these words together and then pray. Verse, uh, verse 1 says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him. and He sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So Jesus bent down, rode with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he rode on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Verse 10 says, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. 
Anybody notice anything about this text? Or maybe even back in chapter 7, verse 53 or so? Anyone have a notes or a footnotes or something in parentheses about this text? Mine does. Probably yours does as well. It says, the earliest manuscripts don't include chapter 7, verse 53, to chapter 8, verse 11. So in the earliest of manuscripts, right, the Bible was hand-copied for centuries before the printing press. The earliest manuscripts did not have this portion of John in it. Best of our knowledge, it flowed from verse 52 of chapter 7 right on to chapter 8, verse 12. And so what's interesting is it doesn't show up in any Greek manuscripts until after or right around the 5th century. Okay, so four centuries or so, it did not appear in those early manuscripts. And when it does show up, there is some dispute on where it goes. So biblical scholars try to figure out, okay, where does this text actually flow? Where does it find itself in the text of Scripture, in the book of John, or even maybe somewhere else? And so some people have it coming in after John chapter uh, 7, verse 36, or 7, verse 44, or even way back in John 21, verse 25. Some manuscripts actually have it in the Gospel of Luke right around chapter 21. And so it does show up in some, some manuscripts, but just not the earliest Greek ones, okay? And so this seems to be a problem, doesn't it? Why is it in our text? Why is it in the Bibles that we hold in our hand today? And it seems like it could be a problem, but as I've dug into this, not just this week, but even before this, there's been a beautiful thing that it has revealed to me about Scripture. Not just this text, but about the Scriptures that we hold in our hand overall. It actually opens up um, a beautiful door to something um, that biblical scholars would call textual criticism. Okay? The textual criticism is just a fancy word for the method or the science of verifying original ancient texts. So verifying um, original documents, original texts, original manuscripts. Like I said, the printing press wasn't invented until mid-1400s, right? Until the 15th century. And so before that, you had manuscripts. You had copyists and scholars that would hand copy each word, and you had all of these manuscripts. Um, and so the science of textual criticism is largely dependent on identifying variations in the manuscripts. The ability to compare and thus find the most accurate and dependable texts. And so having copies or lots of manuscripts is very, very helpful when you're talking about textual criticism, about finding accuracy in documents. If you can have a lot of manuscripts, a lot of copies, that is a good thing. Some people, you might look at that and go, okay, we've got so many copies. Which one's the right one? But in the study of textual criticism, having lots of copies is good because then you get to place those copies against each other and thus find something beautifully accurate. Um, the Bible... There's really good news about the Bible, okay? The Bible, and in particular the New Testament, is the most preserved ancient text in the world. 
Okay, we have the most manuscripts more than any other ancient work. And a lot of ancient works that, that people in the world and people in academia would, would count to be reliable and true. The Bible blows them away with the wealth of manuscripts that we have. Here's a, here's a few examples. So Aristotle's, um, uh, well, let me jump down here. Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars took place, uh, the Gallic Wars took place in about 50 B.C. We have 10 manuscripts of that. Okay, we have 10 manuscripts of that, and they're all written about 1,000 years later. Okay, uh, number two in, in all the world that we know of to this day, of ancient manuscripts, uh, having the most manuscripts would be uh, Homer's Iliad. And there are about 647 manuscripts that have been discovered, okay, hand copies of this work. The Bible. I heard uh, one pastor describe there are an embarrassment of riches of manuscripts when it comes to the Bible. And like I said, the New Testament in particular, uh, many, many sources will cite this, that we have over 25,000 different manuscripts or pieces of manuscripts on the New Testament. Okay, that's 25,000. And number two, like I said, is the Iliad with just about 650 or so. We have 5,800 or so complete or fragmented Greek manuscripts. Okay, that's the earliest. Those are the earliest. The New Testament was written in Greek. We have about 10,000 Latin manuscripts, and then we have over 9,300 various other language pieces, handwritten manuscripts of the New Testament. So when you're talking about textual criticism, this process of verifying ancient texts, more manuscripts, the better. Because then you're able to compare and contrast them against each other and verify, find the veracity of the scriptures. And because of the wealth of its manuscripts, the Bible stands above everything else. So when you read that parathetical phrase in your Bible, it does not appear in the earliest manuscripts. Do not let it shake you. Okay? Don't let that shake you. And, but let it affirm that this scripture, the text that you hold in your hands, has been scrutinized by people way smarter than me. That it has been scrutinized by biblical scholars. And we have this wealth of manuscripts so that we know the Bible that you hold in your hands today is beautifully accurate. Preserved by the Holy Spirit down through the centuries. And so don't let it shake you. So, but, but you might ask, why, why would this be in my Bible then? If it wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. And so there's a lot of scholars, a lot of biblical scholars. D.A. Carson is, is one of my favorites. He's probably one of the most uh, admired current New Testament scholars in our day. He and many others believe that this event, the woman who was caught in adultery, that this event actually did happen, that there was good reason to believe that this actually did happen, even though it didn't show up until about the 5th century in those manuscripts, that it did happen. And although uh, when, it, when it was written down and where it belongs is unclear, it seems that this, in fact, was a true story. And I love preaching on it because it reveals something beautifully um, earth-shattering about Jesus. And I say that, and I don't, I, 
it reveals something magnificent. There is a magnitude of this interaction here that blows my mind and, and stirs my affections for Christ like, like a lot of the Bible does. But this one in particular hits home really hard. And I also think that this text has been wrongly understood in some regards, and so I think it's worth uh, preaching on as well. So let's, uh, let's just kind of review here. Let's set the scene a little bit in our minds today. So Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's in the outer courts area, probably of the temple. People are coming and going. This is a very public place, and he, he is addressing his followers it's likely that Jesus was teaching in the outer courts of the temple area. And it's a place where rabbis and teachers would come with their students and they would expound on scripture and expound on the law for their students. And then all of a sudden there's this commotion. There is this group of well-dressed men briskly walking towards them and in their clutches is a woman who is broken, so- possibly sobbing, head down in shame, and they're coming towards Jesus. In verse 4 of our text, they say to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? There's something strange about this. Something about this, does, does, it, catch your, does it catch your attention? Like there's only one person brought before Jesus. We're Where's the man? You heard the phrase, it takes two to tango? I'm pretty sure it takes more than one person for adultery. Adultery, D.A. Carson points out, is not a sin that one commits in splendid isolation. One wonders why the man was not brought with her. He says something along the lines of, did he run off and escape? Were her accusers so chauvinistic that they only brought her to him? And adultery is a grave crime. It is punishable by death, by the law, by stoning. David Gutzik points out in his teaching on this that there are specific things required by Jewish law to bring a capital offense like this against someone. I didn't realize this until this week. Okay, so if you're going to bring an accusation against someone... That was a capital offense. That was punishable by death. There were certain things. You just couldn't start mouthing off and accusing people. Certain things were required. So this, these are some of the things that were required. You had to have two eyewitnesses to the account. Okay? So not just one witness, but two eyewitnesses had to see this woman in adultery. And the two had to agree on every detail of the matter. And one of the biggest things was that they had to catch specifically the act. Okay? So you couldn't just have a man and a woman leaving a bedroom together. Couldn't just have, you know, fixing his belt, fixing his tunic, whatever it was. Hair all a mess. Couldn't just be that. They had to be caught in the act. Actually, the, the teacher actually noted, um, uh, David Gutzik noted that it wasn't even enough that they were lying in bed together. Not to be crass, but they had to be caught in the act. In order to bring charges so severe, they had to be caught in the act by two eyewitnesses who had to agree on every detail. 
they were bringing this, a sin so grave that it was rightly punished by death. You bet they had to have what they need to bring an accusation like this. It almost makes me wonder if this was a setup to some degree, right? Think of the motivation, why they would bring this woman. They brought the woman before Jesus and, and it said, this woman was caught, what says you? And then our Bible tells us that they said this to test him, to trap him. This poor woman, in the lowest moment of her life, and not at all innocent, okay? She's not at all innocent, but she's being exposed. Her sin is being exposed in a very public fashion, used by the religious leaders as a pawn to test and to trap Jesus. It doesn't seem that they care much about justice in this moment. It doesn't seem that they care much about the law of Moses. They definitely don't care about this woman, but they just care to trap Jesus. They ask him, what do you say? She should be stoned to death, bludgeoned to death, big two-handed rocks thrown at her. What do you say? Jesus doesn't respond, at least, at least not right away. But he bends down, and he lowers himself. And he starts to write in the dirt. Wouldn't it be awesome to know what he was writing? Like, what was he writing? I've heard some uh, preachers kind of, like, try to come up with possible options. Whatever. Like, maybe it was, like, the names of all these rulers of the law. Maybe it was the names of their mistresses or something. Maybe it was the names of their sin. Maybe, who knows, maybe it was some scripture. We, we have no idea. But he doesn't answer right away. He get, come, brings himself low. And I think it's kind of cool because I could just imagine this woman in the lowest moment of her life, full of shame, exposed, being used as a pawn, probably thrown down at the feet of Jesus. And he lowers himself and he starts to write in the dirt. But he brings himself down low. What do you say? They kept asking and asking. Verse 7 of our text, it says, And they continued to ask him, and he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. I'm trying to imagine this scene. This brigade of well-dressed men been shuffling through the streets with this woman in their grasp. She's trying to cover herself. She's trying to hide her face. She's probably sobbing, filled with shame, and She's in front of Jesus. The word shame just keeps coming to mind. Have you ever been ashamed? You ever been filled with such hurt in your heart, not because of something someone else did, but because of something that you did? Something that was so gross and unbecoming? Something so hurtful, you just felt so dirty, you just wanted to hide. This woman's being paraded through the streets as a pawn by the religious elite. David Gutzik, in his teaching on this, he, he pointed out that shame is a, a uniquely human experience. That it's an emotion, but yet it's seemingly so much deeper. Mark Twain said, man is the only animal that blushes or needs to. 
takes me back to the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 2, right? Adam and Eve, when they're first created. Verse 24 of chapter 2, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. We looked at this a few weeks ago. Verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Naked and completely free. There was no sin, thus there was no shame. Completely exposed, nothing to hide, and they were free from sin and shame. Then you go ahead to Genesis chapter 3. Verse 7 says, then the eyes of both were opened. Okay, this is right after the sin. The eyes were both opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. God among the, uh, the Lord God among the trees of the, of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to them, Where are you? And they said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Isn't that often our response to sin? You messed up again and again, full of shame, and you run and hide. What a, well, it's kind of foolish, isn't it? But Jesus knows. He knows. He knows you. He knows you. And I think our text speaks to his posture over you. He knows your sin. He knows your brokenness. He knows your shame. He knows your past. Why hide? And you see what Jesus offers. You see that sin equals shame and causes us to recoil and hide. But Jesus, he brings himself low. Right down with this woman. And his response to her is earth-shattering. Blows my mind. Don't be fooled, okay? What I'm about to say and, and, and like looking at what Jesus does, don't, don't be fooled. Sin is evil and its payment is death. Sin is not something to be trifled with. It is not something to take lightly. And don't misunderstand Jesus' position towards sin, okay? It's not that the law was harsh and Jesus was soft and lenient, okay? It's not that the law was harsh but Jesus is like, he's merciful. He is merciful. But he's also pure and holy and righteous and just. He is just in his mercy. Think about Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, talks about sin. And if we go on sinning deliberately, it says this. For if we go on sinning deliberately, in verse 26, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. It's pretty harsh. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he has, uh, which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Sin's not something, sin is not something to mess with. It's not something to take lightly. So what does this passage do? What does this passage teach us? But what is it, or what does it not teach us? I don't think Jesus just took this woman's sin and just swept it under the rug like it was no big deal. This was a capital offense that was rightly punished by stoning. What I also think this passage doesn't do is give us the deflection t- uh, tool when it comes to confronting sin. You ever heard anyone quote this passage where it's like, hey, you without sin, cast the first stone. Like, who are you to judge? Don't be judging me. Don't be saying anything about my sin because you are a sinner too. I don't think it necessarily points to that either. I think that's an incorrect use of this. Because when I look at sin and when I look at confronting a brother, there is appropriate ways and that it is right for us to build each other up, to confront each other's sin. Matthew 18, verse 15 says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother, restored him. Galatians 6, 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you be tempted too. So Jesus, I don't think he's just sweeping this grave offense under the rug. But I think it points that sin is addressed in this life not for condemnation or death, but for the application of mercy. For the application of mercy and thus redemption and restoration and salvation. Because one day Jesus, as it says in Hebrews 10, will judge the world and sin will be destroyed. But in this story, and in my life, I've seen the mercy of God in earth-shattering ways. He lowers himself and he's writing of the dirt. One by one. These men drop their rocks, maybe. Maybe they had rocks in their hand, I don't know. One by one, they go away, starting with the older ones first. I think that's an interesting note. Like, why does the Bible even care to say that? Maybe because they have more wisdom. (laughs) Maybe because they have been through life, and they understand that they are not without sin. So they go away one by one. And finally, it's Jesus and the woman still standing there. I still picture her in a heap on the ground, Beautifully, Jesus bends down and lowers himself. He condescends to the brokenness. He pours out his mercy. Just like Jesus coming in the Christmas story, he comes down. In this story, Jesus confronts the sin of the world. He comes down. Reminded of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. He comes low when he offers mercy to the woman. Undeserved mercy. She was guilty. 
She actually deserved death. And we too, our sin separates. The payment for that sin is death. We do not deserve mercy, but we deserve judgment. But Jesus, God, put on flesh. He came down into the world so that he might give us mercy, that we might have salvation in him. He gave us mercy that we might be restored and saved, not like these men who bring accusation and condemnation for destruction and death. He comes low and he offers mercy. Verse 10 of our text, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus is not your accuser. He's your advocate. Do you understand that? He's not your accuser. He's your advocate. I think it's 1 John. It says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the perpetuation for our sins, not for um, ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He's our advocate. Jesus Christ came down into the world, put on flesh, and we have an advocate with the Father. He is the righteous. He pleads our case. He speaks for you. He vouches for you. What an amazing thing that God himself would vouch for you. You know who the accuser is, right? Satan. Revelation chapter 12. He is the accuser of the brethren. You ever have him whispering in your ear that you're still not good enough? That that horrible, sinful, shameful past is still there haunting you? Showing you that you're still not good enough. Condemning. Bringing up the past. All the sin, all the unworthiness, all the shameful things that you have done. It's just shame and shame and shame and shame. Your accuser, the enemy of your soul, will constantly bring up your shame. Jesus. In his mercy, looks down on Kevin, the wanderer, the adulterer, the idolater. The accuser's coming at me like a group of well-dressed men, accusing, shame, shame. Jesus goes, ah, he's with me. I'm the advocate. He's with me. I covered that. Kevin? No, he's not righteous. But his faith is in me, and I've got him covered. He's received my mercy, and it's no longer condemned. Thank God for his mercy. That's what he does for every one of us. So when you're battling and you're wrestling with those voices in your mind going, shame, 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 shame. 
understand Jesus Christ, your advocate, stands there. He's with me. She's with me. What a beautiful thing. Where are your accusers? Where are your accusers? Where are they now? Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you. But go. And from now on, sin no more. Calls her to repentance. Calls her to live in line with the mercy that he just poured out. Calls her to live in line with this beautiful salvific moment, this salvation moment that she just had. She was rightly condemned. Her acts of sin were too grave. She should have been punished by death. But Jesus shows mercy and doesn't condemn. What a beautiful thing we have in Jesus. It makes me think of John chapter 3 a few weeks ago. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He's with me. She's with me. What a beautiful thing it is to receive mercy from God. Mercy this week and looking at this text like I said, it's been earth-shattering. That God would, would vouch for me. That God would vouch for you. And he did that in the cross, right? He did that. He, all of our sin is nailed to the cross, and we bear it no more. And so today in this place, I just, like, have you put your faith in Jesus? Because that's the way he vouches for you. That's the only thing that's required. Faith. It's the only thing that's required. When he steps up on your behalf, put your faith in him. He's covered you. Just like he did to Adam and Eve in the garden, his righteousness becomes your righteousness. It's like when I was, I, I've told this story before. When I'm sitting on the parade route and this well-intentioned evangelist comes up to me and he's like, hey, brother, if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven or hell? I'm like, nah, I'd go to heaven. He's like, oh, you're good enough for heaven. Absolutely not. But Jesus is. But Jesus is. He's covered me in his righteousness through faith. If you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, today's your day. As we wrap up and the band comes, we're going to sing a song in just a moment. I've got two big encouragements for you this morning, and, and I just want you to respond as we sing together. First one, if you're in this place and you've been toying with sin. If you've been playing with sin, repent and receive mercy. Repent of your sin and receive the mercy of God. If you're in this place today, and maybe you've been living in condemnation, you can't shake off the past. You've been living with the accuser in your ear saying, shame on you, shame on you, shame on you. Today, receive his mercy. Let him clothe you and cover you in his righteousness. Cover that shame and then go walking in the freedom from that sin, sinning no more, living in Jesus.
Receive his mercy today. So I'm going to pray and we're going to stand and sing. Respond to the Holy Spirit. What he's been teaching you, what he's been showing you. You need to confess your sin, confess your sin, repent. You need to just sit in the mercy of God today. Know that you are completely loved by him. I just pray that he would wash over you with his grace, that he would wash over you with that mercy, that you would understand the depths of his love today for you. Father, thank you for this morning. We thank you for this text. Thank you for the reliability of your word. God, I pray for those in this place that maybe they haven't seen their sin as such a serious offense. God, I pray that they would stop playing today. That they would confess that, that they would repent of that, that they would turn towards you completely. God, from brothers and sisters in this room today that maybe the accuser has been in their ear nonstop, reminding them of the past. It's been covered by you. Maybe they still experience some of that shame. God, I just pray that they would hear your voice. God, that they would understand that you are for them, you are not against them. God, by faith, you cover all of it. That they would walk in the freedom that is found in Jesus. It's found in you. So God, let us be free from that condemnation. Let us be free from that shame. Let us be free from our sin and walk in you. We love you, God. We thank you. We praise you. Continue your good work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing together.